Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hello and welcome to Podside. I am your host, Kurt, and tonight I am joined by uh, my good friend, Carlo. Hi, Kurt. How you doing? Um, I'm doing just great. Uh, and I am not just joined by you. Um, if uh, people have been following our animation episodes, uh, then they have probably, hopefully, already listened to our episode uh, on the 2021 animated fantasy horror film, The Spine of Night. Uh, and, uh, in, in accordance with that, we have, uh, two special guests, uh, tonight, which is, uh, the directors of the film, The Spine of Night, Philip Gillette and Morgan Galen King. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having us. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Excellent. So, uh, suffice to say, uh, we watched your film uh, a couple weeks back to record an episode about it. Um, and we all pretty much absolutely loved it. You know, we're all, uh, slightly, slightly older, I, I think, uh, as, as humans go now at this point. Uh, so we all kind of grew up with exactly that sort of, you know, gonzo weird sci-fi films. Uh, and for me, at least the, the experience felt like, I don't know, like falling through a portal back to, you know, wandering, the aisles of a weird VHS store when I was 10 and being like, what is all this stuff? What are all these skulls and fire and glowing crap? Um, so my, my first question is, uh, how exactly does one go about making a hard R, uh, rotoscoped blood and guts fantasy horror film in this day and age? Oh man. I mean, it's really, two, it's almost two questions because like one on a technological level, like how do you actually do it? But I mean, I think, uh, Phil could speak more to like how uh, we actually made it happen from inception. Yeah, I mean, well, I don't want to toss me the back to Morgan, but really the story starts with Morgan because he made um, in his living room, basically by himself, a, a number of short films that you can see on YouTube. Uh, and one of them was this film called Exordium, the short film called Exordium that I saw and uh, I mean, this, it took us a long time to make this movie. I probably saw it in 2013, 2014, 13, mm -hmm. right? 13, um, I think, yeah. And I thought that it was awesome. I had sort of the same reaction that you had to the feature film. And I was basically mm -hmm. like, this is, uh, this is everything that I love and is not in the world. How can I, how can I make more of this? So I, I just reached out to Morgan, uh, and said, Hey, I love your short film. Let's talk. <laughs> And, and try to figure out how to make more of this stuff. And then, I mean, you know, there's a, there's a long winded answer to this question, but the, the short answer is just like, we just sort of did it. I mean, we didn't, uh, I, I've been a screenwriter and working in Hollywood for a while. And I figured that there was no way then, and probably not even now that anybody would give us money to make a movie like this. So we just sort of like wrote a script, cast it, I rented a warehouse in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, where I live, and we just started, basically, is, is how we did it. 
Yeah, I mean, it, and just like with the short films, which was always just a matter of like the only way to ever make a thing. Because I had, you know, for those, no money and no real, no even equipment. I had to, you know, borrow cameras and lights to even shoot the live action part. So it was, it was almost for both of them. It was really kind of just a matter of like a nose to the grindstone kind of thing and just crank away at something that <laughs> that no, nobody w- would pay for or knew that they even wanted. <laughs> yeah. I, I, um, I, I was surprised to learn. I, I was, I was on the one hand surprised to learn how long it had been in kind of pr- production for, but it also answered a question that I had been trying to puzzle out, which was um, there was a trailer that I'm or, or or something a short or a snippet or something that I saw I don't think it was it was a uh, exordium I, I think it was something related to a uh, spine of night that I saw I think a few years ago um and I I couldn't figure out what it was and I spent like a few weeks off and on in like December of 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 this this past year trying to figure out what it was I remember it I, was I know, I know what it was uh, was and it? you probably know what it was too well, we had put up a like teaser trailer in oh, pretty early on, like maybe 2015, um, that I was so because I was the initial thought was this is going to take three and a half ish years mm-hmm. to complete when we started, based on some very flawed reasoning on my part, and and so we'd done the we had enough footage finished that we're like we'll put a, a little teaser up, people who will get to know what we're doing, and any animators out there who are excited about working on this kind of thing will reach out to us. And uh, at the end of that trailer, I thought, well, I'll give myself plenty of time. And be like, coming late 2017, (laughs) which which was one of the sadder days in my life when I delisted that video, knowing we weren't even close to ever even. I mean, we were like maybe at the halfway point of the film when it was obvious we weren't even going to meet that year, much less the next. So, uh, yeah. Well, that, and it, it did not lead to an influx of t- trained rotoscope animators who'd been hiding no. in, in the bushes either. So it's like, you know, those, those I, hypothetically, I don't know. I can't actually think of a movie that has this moment, but like hypothetically a moment where like, you know, a downtrodden hero like raises his sword and is like, you like join me and then the people rise up and join them. That's what we thought was going to happen when we, mm-hmm. when we put rotoscope animation up and we're like, we're looking for animators, but we definitely had the opposite experience where it was like <laughs> crickets, right? Like there was no army waiting to, to rise to, to help us finish the film. So, uh, yeah, that, that was definitely one of my questions was, which is, yeah. Like, where do you find rotoscopers? Like, did you, did you have to start from scratch? Did you, did you like, what is it like, is that something that is like still taught or that like, like animators know how to do, or are you kind of having to, to figure out a production method, you know, on your own? As far as I can tell, most people who go to school for animation will do one short project in in rotoscoping. Like they'll, you know, they'll watch the Take On Me video or something and then be like, that's what we're going to do. It's due next Thursday. (laughs) You know, like (laughs) I need I need 10 seconds next Thursday. And so that is the only experience anyone has ever that is looking for work today has had at most had with with it. So, 
so yeah, we were basically training people in like in the the workflow that was just something I had cobbled together for myself when I was working alone. So it was like it was just Photoshop and Premiere, but it had a lot of like mm-hmm. custom actions, and you had to set the files up in just a particular way. And you know, it's it's not animation software pipeline; it's it's drawing software. So no one really knew what to make of it. Eventually, we got um, a small team. Uh, so we brought on Ian Densford, who had done storyboards with me on the short films. And he came on and did some for a couple of years, and then his uh, web comic sort of took off, and he went to go focus on that. And we hired another guy named Britt Scott, who was great, and he worked with us through to the end. And right about that time, my brother's wife was pregnant, and he was like, I need a job where I can work from home. Can I animate with you? And he had done animation in college, and I was like, you can, because... You know, I know you're capable of doing this, but like, this is not a nepotism thing. You got to really be able to do it. <laughs> like, this is for real. But as it turns out, I don't know if you have siblings, but like, this sort of connection that you can have where like I can be a little bit meaner and he, but also he gets me without me having to explain things quite as deeply. So it, it ended up being a really good working relationship. And, uh, and both he and Britt after we finished uh, The Spine of Night, went on to work at Minnow Mountain on uh, the Undone series on Amazon, which is oh, okay. also, also rotoscope. Yep, yep. Oh, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. I will have to check that out. It's good. It's good. Uh, like Bob Odenkirk is in it. Oh, neat, neat. Yeah, I love him. Um, oh, uh, what I was going to mention about the trailer before is, um, so the the fact that you, that that's that's so funny, but explains so much that it was up and then you uh, delisted it. Um, it created a mystery for me that led me to discover a couple other uh, kind of like indie weird sci-fi animated films that I don't know I would have ever found uh, otherwise. One of which is uh, Empress of Darkness. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. Nick which, Liberto. Yeah. 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 Which I was blown away by his his style, which obviously is like v- very different from from your guy's style, but still kind of feels like it's pulling from that that same thread of like, I don't know, I kind of think of it as like psychedelic freak out, uh, uh, you know, (laughs) sci-fi. Yeah. Like, like if you were having a psychedelic freak out in like the spring of 1982, it would be be one one of this, you know, a movie like that or like ours. Yeah. It it does. I, I mean, on, on that note, it seems kind of. I mean, between between animated productions like like, like yours and uh, the Empress of Darkness, and kind of stuff like the Color Out of Space, or you know, a- any number of other kind of like weird sci-fi or fantasy horror films that have come out in the last few years, it kind of feels like there's some kind of a resurgence going on of that that style of of sci-fi and fantasy. Not that it ever completely went away, but it, it I don't know. It it feels like it's much more in the zeitgeist now in, in, in some way, do you, do you get a sense that there's, I don't know, there, there's a hunger for this, this sort of, you know, stuff out there. I think there is in the sense that like it all, there's always sort of these generational cycles where a certain group of people grew up with something and want to try to do it once they are finally, you know, old enough to have, you know, like the, the time or resources to do it. I, you know, I was, I was sort of marveling not long ago about how, like, there's such a 50s resurgence in the 80s. 
you know, like, and it's sort of like, it feels like, you know, there's, you know, there's so much of that, like sort of, um, even Twin Peaks or something has like a, has like a 50s vibe, but I was watching that, um, uh, what's that one with the tonight is what it means to be young movie, Phil, you know what I'm talking about? Nope. It's the one that the character, Willem Dafoe's in it with, uh, and he has a sledgehammer fight at the end. Is that the city uh, streets of fire streets of fire streets of fire. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. So like that one is sort of like that anyway. So my point's only this, like, I I think maybe just the people who grew up with, you know, like these, like the Bakshi films and, you know, heavy metal at, at the time, like, I think it just takes this long for them to have the resources to try to make something. So, to so get I think into positions of power and push people around and make them do what they want. <laughs> right, right. I mean, maybe, but like we didn't, you know, I don't think any of the examples are really examples of people being in within the entertainment industry. So, I mean, I, I agree with Morgan up to a point. Uh, I also, I would say that it's also like, um, to me, that this sort of like psychedelic fantasy or like, you know, even sort of, I would also put it like under the rubric of like, like a psychedelic cosmic horror or something. Mm-hmm. Like, it, yeah, it, totally. Like, to me, it feels, and I think the reason I am very drawn to trying to make it is that it, it just feels so different than anything else that we're seeing in mainstream entertainment. And that to me is exciting. And like, I don't know, it just feels different and maybe that i think that's part of what morgan's saying too in terms of cycles that's been long enough that it, that it feels different but um anyway i i don't know i don't i don't know that, i don't know that i'm detecting like a giant push from like the executives at netflix who are saying like <laughs> we need more psychedelic fantasy yeah yeah i i honestly also wish that so so um it, it's interesting you mentioned that felt because um as you were saying that, I was thinking to myself, like, the entire movie feels like um, a, a, it feels like a, a Conan or, and or um, sort of like a, a Fafford and the Grey Mouser, um, like the, the beginning of those stories where it's not so picaresque and not so uh, cheeky and it's much more where, where Fritz Leiber would just oh they're on a boat oh they they just so happen he doesn't spell it out but they just so happen to find this island that rose out of the sea for whatever reason it's got a giant temple on it and tentacles coming out of it huh <laughs> how curious i wonder what that is um and they escape with their you know with their lives and their sanity intact it it felt like a spine of night feels within that sort of uh milieu like that weird fiction yep. uh type of uh yeah yeah like the genre of that uh and i'm sorry i i, I might have uh talked over something you were going to say no no i i was only going to agree like i, I think there are a, a bunch of i think sub genres that went that that fueled the spine of night it uh from both my and morgan's perspective and but for me it's very much trying to like take sub genres of fantasy that are largely or almost exclusively exist in literature and mm. put them and, and adapt them to the screen. I mean, I think we're, we're both really big fans of the 1982 Conan, which to me is maybe the only real example of like that sort of low fantasy, <laughs> low weird fantasy sword and sorcery, because everything, I don't want to say everything since then, but like the major examples of fantasy since then have, have largely been 
like Tolkien, like like super high fantasy, and even mm-hmm. even Game of Thrones, which I think does a pretty good job of of doing both. It, it eventually ends up in high fantasy, right? Like eventually, it is elves and dragons and and like ice zombies, and like it it, it sort of like it walks backwards through the door into Tolkienism. I I I would <laughs> I might argue, um, but, and I, maybe I'm wrong, but that's sort of my my impression. Uh, so so trying to take you know, like the, 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 like run the flavor of like the original pulps, like Conan and, and, and Liber through the lens of the sort of more psychedelic seventies version of them. And then like (laughs) dump it into the 21st century was, was, I think for me, a really big appeal of the project. Definitely. So like (laughs) on a narrative sense, since we're, since we were kind of talking a little bit about like the structure of this story, um, you know, it's it 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 feels it felt to me kind of both episodic and linear. Like it's not it's it's not an anthology, but but it's not it's not like a purely linear story either. Exactly, it's kind of still moving through. I guess you could call them like set pieces or or uh, vignettes that are all linked, but you know, by this this overarching net narrative that kind of bookends the film and and uh, you know reappears uh, th- throughout it. Um, in in terms of like putting together the 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 plot and the story of of the film, did you did you approach each segment individually? Was it planned as like one one long through line? Like how did you go about assembling it? I recall having a discussion really early on about how it always feels kind of tacked on in heavy metal when the like the Lochnar at the end <laughs> ends up being the thing that turns the girl into Tarna. And it, it never quite felt it I mean, I love all of that as a framing device, but it, it never really feels particularly intentional. And so I I feel like we had a discussion at one point of like, what if we took a sort of anthological structure and had a consistent through line that pulled you through. And and I think I also, uh, you know, speaking of literary things we want that you don't see in film too often, uh, I grew up as a really big fan of Walter M. Miller Jr.'s uh, Canticle for Leibowitz. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, yeah. And, and so that sort of structure where it's one story, but they're each kind of bespoke, but they also kind of just start and end in the middle <laughs> of where they were going. Like they have enough that you're like, oh, that was a story, but it always sort of le- bleeds into the next experience decades or centuries later. And so I think marrying those two ideas, like what if we did heavy metal, like a canticle for Leibowitz, was part of conceptualizing how the structure would work. Yeah, I I think that um, Kurt and I were both really sort of taken by the fact that we, when you start, even though you do have that initial framing of um, of Zod, you know, like climbing up the mountain to tell the, the, the guardian, you know, what's, what's been up <laughs> since the guardian's <laughs> been around. Um, y- you do this great, uh, sleight of hand, right? Because you go back and you start the story and I forget all about that. And when you get to the point where, um, where, uh, oh shit, I forgot the, uh, the scholar's name, um, meets her. 
uh and and he's like oh yeah you you got this power and then suddenly the the moment of decision happens and he just like mercs her we were both like holy shit yeah that was that was really surprising i was i was blown away i i was i I feel like i have a pretty good narrative sense for like where things are going i was i was not expecting it to go in in that direction i was expecting them to go on a little journey together and then that (laughs) felt like i I don't know it felt like you you guys shifted the gears of the film and a surprise rising way at that moment well i think it's awesome yeah i think i think the 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 thing that i um that i was thinking was and and this is you know i guess to you to your you know to the skill that you employed in not sort of tipping your hand too early um you think well you know he's a scholar he's 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 gonna be a good guy right he's gonna help her out right no (laughs) he sees power and he's gonna grab it (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and that's, a, I mean, that's honestly, it's a great, it's a great uh, subversion and honestly, good subversion. I think uh, not, not one that feels sort of trite, you know, or something that somebody has to tell you after the fact that, yeah, that was subverting. This is like, was it though? <laughs> Why do you hate scholars so much? That's my question. You've just been waiting for a scholar. Well, they have weird long fingers, apparently. What's up? What is up with the finger? <laughs> oh, okay. So, we worked on the project for so long. I wanted to make everyone remind everyone. So, we were about, oh, I don't know, maybe three or four years into the project when I read an article about how these things that people used to think were page turners used by monks, which were these long sort of tweezer devices that, would you know, they found in ancient libraries – that people had thought were like they didn't want to touch the delicate pages, so they would turn them with these old tools. And we'd already, you know, I, I had read that before and thought it was neat. Was like, what if they were just on his fingers because he's turning so many pages all the time? And then we find out, like, they some different. There was some scholarly disagreement that they were actually uh, knives that you would use to cut the old hand cut pages. Like if you came to a book and like the page, the pages weren't separated. If you, so you could like, you know, cut through them like a letter opener. Mm. So, so, which is not particularly exciting, but just, it was interesting that the project took so long at the leading <laughs> research as to what this medieval <laughs> item was had changed. So, <laughs> And then they just thought, well, they'll be fun. I mean, they're claws anyway, so you know, knives, page turners, it all worked out. That that's definitely one of the um, that that fight or sequence where uh, he, you know, he he kind of starts using them to, I, I don't know, it, almost like a Dark Souls boss or something, starts sending <laughs> these waves of energy that slice people in half. Um, it was was I felt like another turn. Um, because it really, to me, I don't know, it, it drove home to me the sense that the stories could kind of turn on a dime because you spend like a minute or so building up. Um, I'm, I'm totally blanking on, uh, the, the female scholar's name. Oh, Faye. 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 Yeah. Her, her, her friendship kind of with this like guardsman type guy who's lurking around. And, and then he, as Carlos so elegantly put it, also gets murked. Uh, just kind of sli- sliced and diced apart. And you're like, oh, well, I guess he's not he's not going to appear in the next sequence. <laughs> well, there were there were uh, that poor Barrow is his name. Uh, 
two or three scenes got left on the cutting room floor, uh, unfortunately. So he, I'm glad that still came across to you because he definitely, not only was he murked, but his scenes were also murked for the sake of runtime. So. <laughs> I mean, I, I think in, in like a, in a sense, even though, I mean, Game of Thrones might've been out for six months when we started this, but like the, you know, the characters not being like explicitly coded as heroic or villainous, even if they're obviously doing bad things or, or pretty good things. I think if you, or at least I hope it comes across and you sort of like you were saying, where you don't expect Galser to stab her because he's like a scholar who was sort of looking out for her and she helped him. Like it's not even like an active means of subverting it. I think as much as like just not thinking of them in, like a mm-hmm. binary moral terms. So they sort of get to, and th- I think that ends up lo- like with Barrow, he just doesn't have the plot armor that that character <laughs> would seem like he would normally have. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I, I think that that sense of there being unexpected, or like not quite knowing what the stakes are is, is part of what makes sci-fi and fantasy so enjoyable to me because, you know, you, you are learning the rules of this world. If there are any rules uh, just as much as, you know, or you should be learning them just as much as as the characters are. And if there isn't that sense of stakes or that sense of like vulnerability, for for me at least, it's hard to get invested in the story and the characters because it just kind of feels like a it, it just winds up feeling like a traditional narrative, but you've added some some science fiction stuff to it. And some people now now have like, you know, lasers. But if if it just feels like a typical story and not like, well, anything could happen, and it turns out that, you know, I didn't I didn't understand the nature of the conflict or the nature of the stakes, which to me feels like it robs something, especially from from a genre like sci-fi and fantasy, where part of the enjoyment is is the unexpected, which is also why I, I enjoyed so much that I, I I think it's safe to say that not a lot of time goes into a- explaining why magic blue flowers do the things that they do. <laughs> Um, there's a bit, you know, like, like you get the backstory of them, but it's not, nobody's ever like, uh, you know, oh, well, there's a, you know, there's a flower dying in these flowers and it is a chemical from the gods and you eat it and then you do this. Like, it's just kind of like, well, it, it does weird plot stuff. It's very much like to go back to Carlo's point about like weird fiction. It very much feels like the weird object in an HP Lovecraft story where it's like, you know, it's weird. You don't quite know how weird or in what way? Yeah. Yeah, totally. I've always sort of, I've said this a few times, so I'm sure Phil's sick of hearing it, but that I think in a lot of ways, horror, like, you know, Lovecraft and the old weird horror writers, does fantasy in a way that feels more fantastical than most fantasy, mm-hmm. in that it, it traffics in the unknown and inexplicable and fantasy which i love obviously huge fan of of the the whole genre but it loves to do maps at the front of the book it's a lot of them have appendices now with you know royal family trees and and every and you know magic systems that are so codified that you're like well i know all the rules of the magic and for a long time you'd see that as like writing advice it's like if you're going to use magic make sure the rules are really clear and I, I feel like that strips it in a way of a lot of the wonder and mystery and fantasy of like, what is over the next horizon? I don't know. So. Yeah, there's there's even a line from, uh, I think it's from Galzier. Is that his name? The 
Jackass scholar, yeah. Uh, who who he he basically says, you know, if if you have this power, anything you want, anything you want becomes real, which is clearly not like qu- quite the case, but you know, but it it establishes the the terms well enough for the audience, but it also opens up a bunch of other questions because you see him, you know, draining people's blood and doing a bunch of other super weird stuff, and at that point, it's no longer clear, like, well, is he doing this because he's uh, just a really weird dude now because he's got cosmic power inside his his brain? Or is this actually like a sort of science that he's pursuing? And the answer seems to kind of be both <laughs> by the end of the film. <laughs> I would um, say yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, it's like, it, and you, you, you get the impression that, you know, as, as well they should, like even the characters don't quite know uh, the the level of powers that they are are playing around with. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a I'm a huge uh, proponent of. <laughs> I mean, that, I don't want. Sorry, I was gonna say maybe this makes me just a lazy screenwriter, but I'm a huge a huge proponent of stories and writing stories where the you know it's on the audience to to puzzle these things out. Like I, I feel like if you're writing a story that doesn't leave questions in the audience's mind then they're just going to see it and forget it because it's like, well, that everything was explained in the end and I don't ever think need to think about that again. Whereas, you know, and, and it's hard to do, especially, um, well, with the way that script development goes, because a lot of script development, the notes you get are like, you need to explain this and you need to explain exactly why this guy thinks this and you need to explain exactly how this works. And I hate that uh, <laughs> because it, you know, like, like, the the world that you're creating needs to have an internal logic certainly but it's not i really don't think it's on you as a filmmaker or writer to explain it at all like you want the you want the viewer or the audience to to you know to work and and the more they work i think the more they will find themselves drawn into the fiction and that's exactly what you want so um anyway that's my diatribe <laughs> <laughs> No, I, I, as 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 a as a fiction writer myself, Philip, I I am, I am. You're, you're preaching to me, man. Uh, yeah, I, I I I totally agree. Like you have to leave some space to invite the the audience to sort of make connections on their own and maybe interpret a little bit and yeah. maybe walk away going like, well, what was that all about? And think about it, you know, and that that. I feel like that tends to uh, give uh, a a work of of fiction uh, or of you know like uh, a film some sort of staying power because then you're still sort of like gnawing on it and going like oh wow you know I didn't hadn't thought about that yeah I mean it's it is a um, somewhere there's a quote uh, about well it's specifically about the end of Chinatown. Uh, and, and it's probably a Polanski quote, so apologies for bringing up a highly <laughs> problematic filmmaker, but he's not wrong. And, and you know, there's a, in, infamously a huge argument over how Chinatown was supposed to end. And Polanski's point was, was that if you give it a happy ending, it was sort of exactly what I was just saying. Like you're, the audience isn't going to leave upset and, and therefore they'll just forget the movie. So you, you, you know, and, and I think I, I, I tend to apply that across not just endings of movies, but the entire writing of a movie that you, you need to like, I don't know. You need to like certain not upset the audience, but like you need to, you know, you, you what you sort of do need to upset them. Otherwise, like what's yeah. you know, what's the what's the point? You know. Well, I um, mean, 
I, I think that, that, you know, earlier I was talking about like, you know, Zod getting murked and, and honestly, that was a moment where I was like, holy shit. I was a little like that upset me because it, it sort of upset, like it, it rattles the, the, the idea I have in my head as a viewer of where I thought this was going. And, yeah. and I feel like, um, one of the things that that you managed you know both of you managed to do in the film is that um by the time i I've, I've figured out sort of what the rules of of this particular vignette are you've moved ahead in time so that the rules have changed mm-hmm. and and it it's not that they've changed uh like it doesn't feel like anything's you know gone off uh, at a 90 degree angle or anything like that. It just feels like a deepening of the existing basic rule that, you know, the bloom is really not good and it should not be part of the world. And as the, the film progresses, things get worse. Uh, and you know, but the rules of how it gets worse are somewhat change, you know, malleable. Yeah. To your, to your point, Carlo, um, it's, what I thought was a neat trick there uh, it, it was was that, you know, you, you have Zod is telling the story to the Guardian. And so she's giving the backstory of how she came to be talking to the Guardian. Um, and then she dies within her own story. And you wait, 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 wait a minute. What? Wait a minute. Can you do that? Can you die within a story that you yourself are telling? And that that right there just opens up so many questions about where the film is going next. And then, of course, that first big time jump where you go, oh, OK, this is actually so quite some time has passed, uh, as it turns out. This is not like a I have journeyed for many months sort of thing. This is like I was I was dead in a swamp for several thousand years <laughs> and then came back and then I journeyed for, for many months. Yeah, I mean, it was being able to play with that, those, you know, the larger time structure, like to be able to zoom out to like almost a geological time frame more than like, you know, the, the usual story where you sort of, you know, you for the protagonist sort of ends at the apex of their journey. You know, like it, it opens up so much more to, I think, to see like sort of the ripples through time that each of these, um, you know, the actions you see have that you, a traditional narrative structure doesn't really allow for generally. It also seems like it let you guys explore kind of like many more different types of, you know, or subtypes of a fantasy setting. Cause you, you, you start off in, in you, you we, we were talking a little bit about Conan earlier. You kind of start off in this sort of Robert E. Howardy Conan-y type world. And, the, and then you kind of progress through, to like a more medieval era. And then eventually you wind up in this weird, like, I don't know, El- Elric sci fantasy horror, giant <laughs> like brass a, machinery. Uh, wor- si- science fantasy. Yeah. Science yeah. fantasy type stuff where uh, God, I, I, I'm going to repeat myself because I, I just love that whole scene where Galsor is just sitting there amongst the cylinders of the blooms, just sort of, it's just such a great science fantasy vibe to it. Oh, Love it. Oh, awesome. Awesome. My wife found that scene the most disturbing of everything in the film. She, 
<laughs> she uh, didn't really know. She'd walk by while I was working, but she, I was not. I was always like, you can see it when it's done. But she, that she definitely shot me a look while we were watching that together for the first time. She was like, this, this is what you've been doing. <laughs> this, this huge spike drained these naked dudes of blood into a swimming pool. I'm like, it's right. And it, it took like six months. So that's what it was. Uh, <laughs> I do love too that that it it. I mean, this is again. This is this is not a subversion, but it is different from what you're expecting. Where you actually have like a literal, like like an action movie set piece of like, well, let's let's crash the weird, you know, sci tech dirigible as a giant fireball into the temple. Is very like, well, that that is how Arnold Schwarzenegger would have solved this problem. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's the end. It's the ending of Flash Gordon, my dude. True. <laughs> there you go. That's true. <laughs> Yeah, totally. So something that jumped out to me um, as a difference stylistically between Spine of Night and kind of some of the older, uh, especially like Ralph Bakshi rotoscoped uh, uh, animated films, was that in in those films, I I noticed that the, the backgrounds tended to be not not like simple but but kind of like downplayed and, and sparse like uh there's there's an illustrator uh i think his name is ian miller um who that is definitely his name yep. yeah well, he, he has a, a terrific style but it's very it's very like sparse kind of very textured but it's not like in your face um and i i noticed that the the backgrounds in spine of night are much more sumptuous like digital arts that they, they almost reminded me of like some of the really good like magic the gathering land art uh where it just had this like really yes. interesting color contrast and just little fascinating bits of detail um was was that like a like, like an intentional stylistic departure was that was that just kind of what like what, what was available was, was like whatever it was it it worked great oh that's great to hear uh i know sometimes the the contrast between the styles some people find it too separated uh, you know i've seen that as as a assembly block a couple of times but for me, I mean, I think you're. I, I think there's a zero percent chance that we didn't include Magic: The Gathering land art, and we were like <laughs> talking with the painters. And I think several of them have even gone on to now have done Magic cards. So yeah, I mean, I that's been, true. Yeah. yeah. So I, you know, I've been. <laughs> I grew up on Magic as well. So there's no doubt that was part of it. Stylistically, you know, I was really looking at Bakshi's Fire and Ice the most, which is, you know, like he was sort of trying to go for Frank Frazetta backgrounds. And I think in a way that just sort of, I mean, well, there's not a lot of people that can paint like Frank Frazetta or Thomas Kincaid trying ripping off Frank Frazetta, mm-hmm. as, it, as was the case in that one. Uh, the painter of light, everyone's fa- famous. He, fam- he, he did illustration background work he, on, he, on Fire and Ice? Yeah, he's the lead Frazetta emulator for the Fire and Ice background. Oh my yeah. god, I had yeah. no idea. What a strange guy he was! Wow. Yeah, I, I watched so this documentary about him. He's he's a a wild, weird dude, or was. Yeah, but, yeah, because he passed away. If you wow, that's such a strange career to go from working with Ralph Bakshi to to being like the the world's leading schmaltzy painter. Man, well, I mean, I, maybe he had range that that I didn't know about. I guess apparently. Yeah. Uh, so it was definitely like looking at that stuff was was what I was thinking, you know, and we, we'd send that to the background painters and tried to find people who had a painterly style. But I mean, some of them were, you know, I, I think sort of the trends in what fantasy painting mm-hmm. is 
come to look like, you know, since the uh, 70s and early 80s is, you know, it's moved more towards that. And I think so in a way it was like the way they painted. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, if we could, uh, I think it would have been a tall order to, to track down people who were specifically doing Frazetta. But I, I love how it all came out. I was uh, blown, like every time a new piece would come back, it was, you know, greater than the last best thing I'd ever seen. So it was, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, that's that. That's always a really nice uh, feeling when when you are. I, I mean, I I I do you know a, a, some of the creative direction for uh, for my magazine. We have an art director, Sam, who who mostly works directly with you know the 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 outside artists. Um, but it's, it's really nice when I'm on a real close wavelength with an artist, and I'm able to just be like, I have this thing in my brain. Can you please make it happen? And it comes. It's just like exactly what you wanted. You're like, yes, yes. Yeah, that's exactly it. <laughs> it. It really, for this kind of project, too, is so transformative because, like, you can't, you almost can't even show a scene to someone because when everything's in a white void, you know, like with nothing else but the characters, like, you don't know what they're pointing at, what they're standing on, what the context of the conversation is. Because it was really a challenge in the early days of trying to screen the film for anyone. Because they just were like, I don't know what they're talking about or what I'm looking at or, <laughs> you know. And so it, it, you drop, one, you know, even just one background, you drop it in there and all of a sudden the next, you know, 20 shots mm. make sense. So. Mm. so we talked a bit before about how, you know, obviously there's a lot about Spine of Night that is evocative of an of an older age of, you know, film and, and fantasy. Um what you know what what sort of responses have you all gotten from you know younger audiences is it is it exclusively you know cr- crusty old nerds like us who who <laughs> love this or you know are are there are there younger people who are getting into this vibe as well i mean i feel like we've only been able to see it live with an audience uh really just once together yeah um, we were sort of in a lull in the pandemic and, we, you know, we flew out to Telluride, which is in the Telluride Horror Show, which is a, an amazing festival mm-hmm. up in the mountains. It was, very, it was a very appropriate setting for the film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, but, you know, we, when we, uh, you know, it was people who wanted to come up and talk to us afterwards and have us sign things, which had never happened to me before, were, I mean, overwhelmingly you know, younger. So, I mean, I, I think it, it, in my mind, I don't know who would get this except old trusty nerds, but, <laughs> but like, I, and, and I think in some ways this is really novel. Like the, I've seen, I get comments sometimes. There's a guy who's like, does YouTube and TikTok sort of automated rotoscoping, uh, Joel Haver or Haver, who, um, he has, he had some very popular like D and D parody, and uh, uh, it, and I think a lot of people is the only rotoscoping they've ever seen. Mm-hmm. So they'll, they'll be like, "Oh, I only know this as this this style as this one comedy thing." Because I mean, like, of course they haven't seen Bakshi movies, really. <laughs> like, it's it's a lot of the audience today will not have. Mm-hmm. So I think in a way we're the first exposure they've had to it. So I think it's a little alien if you don't have the recognition of what the old stuff looked like. But uh, and and it doesn't really follow on from the traditions that they would have grown up with. Like it doesn't look like any anime. It doesn't look like you know Disney. So there's not a lot of uh, reference points. 
but, but that said, I, I think I've seen young people get into it, so I know it's I, I know it's possible. It's definitely possible. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't have much other insight into that uh, than Morgan did. I would say that the other interesting and gratifying thing at those live screenings was that a number of the people who came up to have us to talk to us afterwards were women, which was interesting. Like, we had two at Telluride who didn't know each other and both sort of <laughs> came up and did similar things, which were like, one of them was like, she was so shy. She made her boyfriend come up and talk to us because she was too shy to talk to us. But I think her, her, the whole thing was like, she felt like she'd never seen like herself on screen before or something like, like Zod to her was like really like meant something. And then another slightly older woman uh, who played D and D and she was like, Oh Zod, that's like, that's my, that's my <laughs> character. Like that's my D and D character, which was <laughs> gratifying. Cause like, you know, we made a movie with both male and female nudity. And I, I, we very consciously talked about not wanting it to be just for, specifically crusty old dude nerds so it was i don't think we have a huge female audience but i i know for a, a certain type of nerd woman it it means something and that was very gratifying at least for me so i'm I, i'm glad that you brought that up um because that had completely sl- sl- slipped my mind being being a crusty old dude nerd um but yeah no it's it's <laughs> it's very noticeable that you know the nudity especially like the female nudity isn't used to titillate. It kind of flows naturally from the designs of the setting. And it's, you know, when people are nude, it seems, you know, reasonable from who they are as a character and kind of where they're coming from. Um, And it's, it's not just like, it's, it's not just like people as like sexual objects, which to me, which to me kind of gets more back to the weird fiction like sword and sorcery because there there actually were a fair number of you know female heroes in in those older stories even like robert e howard wrote i think two two or three um uh kind of series of uh short stories and novellas with uh, uh female leads um and it seems like you know in in kind of the way that that translated to film, possibly just because those films started getting made in like the late seventies, early eighties and the, you know, the nature of that era, that felt like something that, that was lost with a few exceptions. I mean, you, you do have like uh, red Sonja, but of course, you know, that, that looks very different on the screen than it did uh, on the page <laughs> as well. Yeah. So yeah, it, it definitely <laughs> stands out. Well, and and I would ar- also argue that um, that by like uh, t- to your point, Kurt, the the Red Sonja film with uh, Bridget Nielsen, who you know is you know a a very uh, muscular woman, right, a- at the time of filming. Whereas um, I think we'd mentioned it in the episode that Zod feels, um, you know, she's she's sort of like heavier set, and it's she's like a. I don't want to say fat, but she's big, right? Yeah. Um, and that's that's something also that I found really uh, sort of interesting in a way because it's she wasn't there. She, like that's not something you often see. It's generally very stylized, very sort of almost sexualized uh, uh, characters to a point. Even you know, even in you know, regular animation. Even, yeah. Yeah. I would say stylized and, and idealized in a way that we didn't mm-hmm. want to, you know? Um, yeah. 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 Uh, that's something I was going to say. Oh, uh, so 
um, to the point of the female body. We obviously eventually we cast stars to redo our voices much many many years later. And when Lucy Lawless took on the part of Zod, her her, her reps told her not to because of the way Zod looked, and she was like. Fuck you guys. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that crazy? Excellent. Hell yeah. 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 Well, yeah. I guess, I guess, uh, I guess thank you to, to the reps then for, for, for accidentally pushing her in, uh, in the direction that you want. Yeah. It's pretty, it's, it's pretty, yeah, it's pretty shocking that like, and it, and it wasn't even like a male rep. It was like her female lawyer who was like, you don't want the public to see you that way. And she was like, fuck, fuck off. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it, it felt like a real opportunity to do something that I hadn't seen, you know, and to, you know, with, with female nudity, especially working in where, I mean, the two big touchstones are going to be heavy metal and fire and ice that people right. have seen when they see yeah. this, who are, you know, I mean, the, the female leads in that are both, you know, like astronomically gorgeous and idealized fa- fantasy heroines. So, you know, like, doing something that was like you're saying more sort of natural and not meant for the male gaze so much as for just like, I guess nudity is like, you know, a connection to like pre civilization more so. so. I also saw it as an extension of uh, the power that she held with, you know, like the control that she had over the bloom as well, but you know, Oh, for sure. G- yeah, given, yeah. given the fact that she's walking up that snowy ass mountain, like in <laughs> negative degrees, just stark naked, and you're like, "How is she not like falling into pieces <laughs> from frostbite?" It's like, "Oh, she's got magic." Okay, that that makes well, sense. Okay. Uh, to be fair, at that point, she's also already kind of undead. So you know what else? That's what, also what else, true. Yeah. What, what else? What else can yeah. happen to her? Either. <laughs> yeah, in my mind, I always thought that was going to be like a mystery, where you get to you'd be like, "Oh, I see. She was rebuilt by the vines." at the end of the swamp and it's sort of like the old um uh the alan moore swamp thing issue the uh, the anatomy <laughs> oh, yeah. lesson yeah where, yeah. where okay. it turns you know so it's in, but we didn't at that point in the film i was like i'm not going to get into how this the, the, the magic science of of yeah. regeneration works you, you've dealt with enough as an audience but i did briefly consider having her not bleed red at the end, so that you'd be like, why is that? But then I, I don't know. I felt like, again, that would be confusing if she was bleeding like sap because mm-hmm. she's made out of bones and, and, and vines. So anyway. <laughs> uh, speaking of uh, the voice cast, it's it's I, I really liked the lineup that you all got. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, it's it's all it's I shouldn't say it's all people who feel more like voice actors than than celebrities but it for, with for the most part it it doesn't feel like people are jumping out as oh that's this celebrity or that's you know right. that's that's celebrity it it feels like a voice that fits the character really well um in particular i <laughs> i did not recognize uh joe mandaniello as a mongrel oh, really? what whatsoever um and i mean i mean very, very different looks to them uh, <laughs> um, I, I i do i do have to say kurt that uh, that, that Patton oswald jumped out but in the yes. exactly right way that i that i wanted <laughs> which is like oh yeah he's the annoying guy okay <laughs> nothing nothing against against Patton oswald but but he his 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 performance in that role really lends itself to the yeah. character as like the annoying fail son 
of some <laughs> some other king. Like my dad owns the castle, by the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Patton, if you're listening to this, we love you. Uh, please come on if you want. We'll talk about other things. But but yeah, it, it, I think that uh, his voice was well used in that in that case. Um, I'm sorry, Kurt, you, you might have been uh, wanting to say something else. Oh, I, I was just kind of going to start transitioning us in, into the home stretch and just kind of ask, like, so what, you know, what what's next for the film, uh, which is is currently available uh, on, on Shudder, which is a great streaming service in general. It's even even better now that your uh, film is on there. Um, so what's what's next for the Spine of Night and uh, what's what's next for uh Gorgonaut, I believe the name uh, of the your uh, production company is. Uh, in, indeed. Well, what is next? I mean, it sort of felt like for a long time that just getting it out, like you had to go through the process of like we had a short theatrical run, then it was VOD, and then finally lands on shutters so as a streaming place where everyone could see it. You know, it sort of felt like that was the end of the run. So we've kind of just been trying to figure out what is next for a while. Um, Wait, but hold on, hold on. There's two important merchandising things that you should talk about as far as what's oh. next for the film. Please, oh. go ahead. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, yes. Well, okay, so one thing we've been wanting to do, just to hawk merchandise briefly, is that we have uh, a pair of miniatures, like mini- like high-end, like you know, war- sort of Warhammer-style miniatures uh, with Zod and Mongrel that are oh. being cast now. And oh, that's should awesome. Be that sounds great. Out in the fall... I think yeah. Um, I've heard there's a VHS release coming. I don't know if that's uh, we're not so allowed to say that or not, but I've heard that's coming. Yeah. Um, we're trying to get the soundtrack out. That's coming. Mm. So so there'll be stuff like like that coming up. And, and you'd mentioned Ian Miller earlier. He actually did a poster for us. No shit. Uh, and that, yeah. he, that you can also get as a wall flag, which if I had my camera on, you would see is right behind me. It's no amazing. shit. That is awesome. <laughs> so, yeah. so the, at the Gorgonaut website, uh, there's a link to where you can find all that stuff. Um, and as far as like what Gorgonaut's doing next, uh, we've been we've been talking about it a lot. There's, uh, you know, it's 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 a mad, like a lot of uh, manpower to do one of these films. So you know, figuring out how to how to stage this again so that I'm not 55 when we're done mm-hmm. is, is a goal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, 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 we can't really say with any assurance we have like uh, many, many ideas for expanding the world of the film. I mean, we, we, it was written, you know, to be a standalone piece, but also with the idea that, you know, you're creating a fantasy world. So inevitably you're like, Oh, we could tell all kinds of stories in this world. So we have a, a couple of different, like a sequel film idea for a sequel film and like a spinoff series and you know, all kinds of stuff we could do in world. And then we've also been kicking the tires on various other, you know, various other types of things that would not necessarily be related to Spider Knight. Um, but we'll, you know, hopefully we'll do something soon. I'm hoping by the end of <laughs> this, this year, maybe we'll at least be in production on something. So we'll see. Awesome. Well, well, here's hoping uh, for for some, some some good luck there because we definitely need more stuff like Spine of Night uh, in in the world. So here's hoping that you get to make some more cool stuff. Um, and uh, you know, th- so uh, thank you, gentlemen, uh, for joining us tonight. Thank you for making uh, an an awesome weird film. And uh, thank you, everyone, uh, for joining us and listening to Podside. Oh, thank you so much for having us. This has been just wonderful. Yeah, thank you. All right. 
Well, thanks, everyone. Catch you next time here on Podside, folks.